So it's interesting how styles change. Uh, we've uh, earlier this week we were talking about the mullet. Anybody remember the mullet? Um, what's that? Don't you? Um, they're actually making a comeback. They're actually, uh, um, which is really frustrating for me because I've, I've waited my entire adult life for the mullet to make a comeback, and now that it finally is, I can no longer grow a decent business in the front, let alone party in the back. Um, but I used to rock a killer mullet in high school and absolutely loved it. Look at that thing. Yeah, right? <clears throat> and I was honestly one of those people who simply could not understand uh, how everyone like turned so violently against the mullet once it was over. Um, I was like, I know for a fact that, that they were cool, and those of us that had them were cool. I wasn't making that up. Um, but the, the emotions around the mullet like weren't just like, yeah, those aren't in style anymore. It was like it goes ordinary murderers, Nazis and people with mullets. Like, it just got real bad, real fast. Like, everybody, everybody all of a sudden hated the mullet. And I didn't get it. I was never one of those people who were, like, embarrassed that I wore that. Like, I, I, uh, I love showing off pictures of the old mullet. Um, could not figure out why everybody acted like they were so bad. And I had my, my kids all the time, like, did they not have mirrors? Did you not have mirrors back then? And I was like, of course I did. How do you think I pulled that off without a mirror? That was awesome. Um, but, but it, you know, that styles change and it's weird. When I first married Esther, every time I would put on this one outfit I had for church, she would say, you can't wear that. Those don't, those don't go together. That shirt doesn't go with those slacks and that tie does not go with that shirt. Um, and every time I would answer back with, it does. I've worn this a thousand times. Like, and, uh, it was one of my staples. Like we had to dress up for certain days in school. This is what I always wore. Like, this is the thing. She was like, no, 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 no. That is awful. Like you have to take that off. And, uh. And so, you know, we would we would uh, eventually get to the point where she would pick my clothes apart so long that I could not get dressed without going, does this go, does this go, does this go? Uh, no matter how many times I wore it, I had to make sure, like, it cleared, um, which I think is one of those things where, like, they teach women to do, like, to, to basically break your spirit. Um, but, <laughs> like, when the boys get pulled aside to in school to learn, like, where they're going to grow hair, they're, like, teaching the girls how to, like, um, <laughs> kidding. Um, how to break a man. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, all that to say, um, it would be really nice if there were some absolutes, like some things that are in and always in, but aesthetics aren't like that. They, they're constantly changing the style of the day. Um, and it's obviously more than just clothes. I do remodeling work and, uh, and you know, we're always putting in the newest, hottest trends and it's and and it's crazy because there's things you pull out it's not just like um yeah i'm ready for a new look usually it's like this room is so dated like it's the worst thing that could ever happen it was like this was in like 10 minutes ago like i put a lot of this stuff in and i'm not that old um but you know and there's some of it like you guys remember the the uh avocado colored appliances or like the harvest gold like you look at it and you're like what was wrong with us like did we honestly think that looked good i've pulled out like pink tubs like real tubs that were pink or turquoise like um it's it's crazy that that we ever thought those things looked good which is weird because you know things seem to look good and it just seems to make sense to us we're like yeah that looks great and it's weird to imagine that in a day not long from now you're going to look at that exact same thing and think it's ugly and like, how does that happen? How do we, how do we change our aesthetics so fast, so fast? Which honestly makes the inter- the opening of the book that we're studying, Romans, um, controversial for sure, but also absolutely beautiful. Because Paul in this morning's passage, um, after kind of introducing himself just a little, 
and kind of giving some background to why he's writing and, and, and the fact that he wants to visit these people, dive straight into a topic that we humans try with everything in us um, to believe is as changing um, and style-driven as clothing and design. Um, and no matter how badly we want to believe that, no matter how much we want to pretend that we can kind of mature and evolve um, away from this topic, the only one thing that is constant in being a human is sin. And Paul dives right into this idea of sin. And we try all the time to pretend like sin changes the same way styles change. And Paul basically says that is not the, not the case. And so from almost the origin of the human story, sin has been our constant companion. Uh, and Paul dives right into that at the beginning of the book of Romans, um, which is an uncomfortable topic to talk about. I mean, everybody's like, oh, great, he's going to talk about this. Um, but we have to. Um, and as much as we try to avoid this topic today because it makes people uncomfortable, as we talked about in our outline last week, um, it is absolutely essential um, to the gospel narrative to talk about sin. Um, we're using the, the outline of the tabernacle um, as we go through Romans. And if you missed last week's message, I, I suggest you get on the YouTube t- channel and catch it. Um, because it's one that where we laid out the book of Romans in outline form. Um, and really the entire gospel narrative in outline form and how it fits into the tabernacle, the wilderness that Moses built for the Israelites way, way, way back when. And as you progress through the book of Romans, it's crazy how closely it mimics the way the priest would move through the tabernacle. Um, and, uh, and we will likely refer back to this often this morning. Um, but today we'll just stand here at the beginning and recognize the very first step of going to the tabernacle is walking through the door. Uh, and and as you as you come to the door of the tabernacle, what they would do is you would have an animal that you intended to sacrifice, and you would lay your hands on that animal and confess your sin. And you would say, "This is this is what I've done wrong. This is what I did, or, or this is why I'm unclean, or whatever the the thing is." And and then they would they would sacrifice that animal. But the very first step to anything in the tabernacle was this act of confession. And we talked last week about how um, when you would bring that animal, um, it would become what would atone for your sin. So. Uh, you never just casually entered the worship experience. You never just walked right into the tabernacle. You always stopped at the door, confessed your sin, recognized that, that you were unworthy to be there, and then you, then you would enter. Um, well, after telling the Romans kind of the main topic of his letter uh, is going to be that he's going to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul takes us to the door of the tabernacle to confess sin. Um, and we will read the first part together, and then I'm going to have to pick and choose a little bit for the, for the sake of time. But this is how Paul opens up this topic. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the good news of, about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us about how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from, from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God uh, because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky uh, through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols 
made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles, and God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth of God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the thing created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their sinful desires. Even the woman turned against the natural ways to have sex and instead indulged uh, sex with each other. And men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolishness to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolishness, thinking um, uh, their foolish thinking, and let them do things they sh- that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. And they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. They know God's righteous justice, or uh, they know God's justice requires um, that those who do such things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So, this this passage, um, back when I used to teach in uh, this uh, Paul's letters in Bible college, I always called the downward spiral of sinful man. Um, because this isn't just like a list of sins like we're used to. You know, we're, when we think of sins, we think of a list of do's and don'ts. Like, you know, is this sin? Is that sin? Is, is this okay to do? Is that okay to do? Like a, like a checklist you can almost make. Um, we tend to think um, that we can just make a list, I don't know, maybe ten things and uh, that you absolutely cannot do, right? We're, we're used to this. And what Paul seems to be describing here is far uh, more kind of progressive and slippery understanding of sin. It starts with uh, almost innocently um, here. And then by the time we, we start to notice things that we might call sin, the things that we tend to pick on, we learn that we're many steps down the road from where it actually started. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. And I don't know um, that this passage needs a ton of background context. It's, it's pretty obvious um, or even deep ex- explanation. But what I do want to do is pull out a few keywords that really jump out at me that we can kind of um, look at together. First is, the, is this word all. It says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people. All. The first key word that we want to spend some time with is the word all. All sinful people. Not some. Not a certain ones that bug us, but all. Uh, Not just the ones that are creepy, but all. Not just the ones that get really, really, really bad, but all. All. This is going to be important in a little bit because Paul is going to make it really clear on just how many of us fall into the category of wicked, sinful people. And God's wrath is on all of those people. We can tend to think, yes, we're all sinners. We get that. We all have messed up. But God's anger really only falls on the certain ones, the really bad ones, the, the awful ones, you know, the ones that, that, well, the ones that aren't like me. Like, is, that's kind of what we think. But Paul makes it clear, no, all. According to Paul, God's wrath falls on all sinners. And the next phrase is this, but God shows his anger against having his all wicked, sinful people who suppress the truth. By their wickedness. And this is so important. Because here's the deal. By the time the sin spiral goes downhill enough that people start to look sinful, they look like sinners, or at least the kind of sinners we might decide that they're bad enough we can now pick on them, it gets way too easy to forget how this whole thing started. No one just dives headfirst into sin, or very few people seem to just dive headfirst into sin. It seems to, to indicate that it starts with some form of justification. Some form of, 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 
of rationalization, some form of suppressing the truth, uh, maybe a denial is, is the better word. We start by suppressing the truth, and this is huge today, because when we start by saying, we have these big public arguments that, that up is down and right is wrong and two plus two equals five, those things, we have this tendency to be like, why does it matter? Let people do that. But when you suppress the truth like that and you call right wrong and you call up down and you, you do that, the spy, that starts the spiral. And I think we see that in a lot of ways. Truth matters. What is true matters. Because everything else that happens after this starts with suppressing the truth. It starts with not recognizing the truth, not acknowledging the truth. I believe what Paul's talking about here is pretty individual, but what happens when an entire society starts to do that? When we suppress the truth, we no longer acknowledge what is true and real. It can't be good. And the word suppression is the perfect word um, because of our next keyword. It says they know. They know the truth. They know the truth because God's made it obvious to them. And this is huge. Suppression of the truth is not a passive process. It's not something that happens accidentally. It's not something that, that um, you know, it's almost like saying, well, the government accidentally suppressed the truth from their people. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Like, it's not, a, it's not an accident. It's not passive. In order to suppress the truth, you have to know the truth. And C.S. Lewis has some great stuff on this, you know, in, in Mere Christianity about how, how, you know, everyone, no one sits around and, and argues, you know, if you have a difference of, of what is right and what is wrong. Nobody argues that there is no right and wrong. Nobody argues for chaos. Nobody's like, I think anybody should be able to do whatever they want. Like, everybody knows there's a moral right. It doesn't matter where you fall on the thing. Like, like everyone knows. What we, did, what we argue about is where it is. Like, everybody knows there's a truth. But we choose to suppress it. So that basically, Paul is saying that though they knew the truth about God, they chose to turn their backs on that. Or worse yet, suppress what they know. So that the next verse that, that, that Paul says, they have no excuse. He says, because they know the truth, they choose not to you know, acknowledge it. They're without excuse. And then in verse 22, which I think should be the motto of the 21st century. This should be like we should all have t-shirts that say this. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Like this, this is our world. Welcome to the 21st century. Because, um, I mean, man, oh, man, you know, we, we, we could park right here, you know, for weeks. We actually... Um, unpack this idea just a little bit in youth on Wednesday night with the kids. Like we have these these themes and these mottos that really they're worldviews. Like really that's what they are. They shape your thinking about everything, and uh, and 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 it all comes couched in wisdom. Like none of it sounds like you know let's be crazy and blah. No, it all like it sounds smart. It sounds like it, it's obvious. It sounds like it makes sense. Um, Satan rarely tempts us with like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, it might get there, but we don't get like an invitation. Hey, you are cordially invited to come sin. Like it doesn't happen that way. Like it, it's slippery. It starts simply, and it usually starts with something that sounds really smart. It starts with things like I can handle it, or I'm just going to go for a second, you know, or just once. We'll just do it this once. Like, and sin starts, you know, with knowing in your gut that something is wrong. But your brain gets talked into something else. You brain, like, and you know in your gut, this, is, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't, you know. But it sounds so smart. It sounds so reasonable. The smarter we get, the more we learn, the more information we gather, the dumber we grow. It's crazy what's going on right now. Has anyone just sat back lately and marveled about how, how stupid we're being with this kind of ridiculously advanced technology that, that some absolute geniuses are bringing to the table? in like the last three minutes. 
Like, and, and it's so weird because the entire planet seems to know that we're careening over a cliff and yet we all do absolutely nothing. Like we all sit around going, like, oh yeah, this thing is so bad for you. This is, phones are killing us. Man, I, like nobody even looks up anymore. It's so crazy. We just all, like while we're doing it, like and we all do it. I read this statistic on my phone about how bad phones are. Like if you, if you know, like, and it's like we all know it. Like we all know it. You don't find anybody that's like, no, these are actually really good for you. I read they're good for you. No, we all know they're terrible while we stay on it. It's insane. All the while we're declaring Christianity to be antiquated and old-fashioned and, and repressive, you know, and claiming to be wise, we plummet into the abyss. Like claiming to be getting smarter and smarter and, and, and we head over and, 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 and Paul calls that out. And then he gets to the heart of it. He says, instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols and made them to look like mere politicians and, um, sorry, I read that wrong, people and birds and animals and reptiles. And the huge, the huge key word here is, uh, maybe the key word of this entire passage is about to drop. So I want to recap before we get to it. It says they knew God and they bury that truth. They suppress it. And they do that uh, by saying they're too wise for that garbage. They suppress the real truth so that they can be smarter and, and freer and wiser. And this is where it gets. Instead of worshiping God um, and, and because they're too wise for, his, for faith, instead they worship everything else. Everything from politicians to the latest scientific study. And I say latest because it's going to change and be a new one tomorrow to worship. Um, changes every day. Uh, or money. And, and, and who hasn't heard a, a story of how tragic that can get? or an ideology, or the latest advancement, or whatever. We worship anything other than God. So they know God, but they're too smart for God. So in their own wisdom, they walk over and worship garbage instead. And not just that, while on their knees worshiping garbage, they make fun of the the people who worship God. The all-powerful God who made everything. And then Paul drops kind of the primary word of this entire passage. He said God abandoned them to do what they want. He doesn't, he, and he, it's almost like he doesn't even punish them. He just, he just steps back. He lets them have their way. He lets them have what they're at. And, and this word abandon gets used three times in this passage. Paul's going to, he actually makes the exact same argument three times. He kind of repeats himself while driving at home. Every time he says it a little bit different. But he says the exact same thing. They know the truth, they turn away, they refuse to worship God, and they worship something else instead, and so God steps back. God lets them. He abandons them. It says they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they knew the truth, traded it for a lie, worshipped and served the thing God created instead of the Creator Himself, who's, who's worthy of praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them. That's the second time he says it. So it says the same statement. They knew God, chose not to worship Him, worshiped something else instead, so God stepped back. This time Paul gets more specific and he talks about um, how when God abandons them, they turn against nature, women sleeping with women, men, men sleeping with men. We hear that one all the time. Then he says, you know, everything uh, over and over again for a third time. So he says it the first time, says it again, gets a little more specific, then he says it a third time and it, and it reads almost the same way. Since they thought it was foolishness to acknowledge God, so they know God, they think it's too foolish to acknowledge Him, he abandons them to their foolish thinking. So same statement three times, three different ways. Three things, three different ways. They knew God, chose not to follow God, and then God chose to let them. 
God allowed them to, to start into the behavioral stuff. It started with a heart thing. It started with a worship thing. All three times, they know God. They choose not to honor Him. So they, so they turn to something else. This is all before sin shows up, the stuff we call sin, the stuff that we pick on, the stuff that we, that we like, it starts in the heart. Where relationship with God always starts. So a couple of things I want to point out about that Paul makes the same statement three times, three different ways. One, we love to use this chapter to say that, that when humans ignore God, God abandons them, and that's why they spiral all the way down as far as you could possibly spiral to homosexuality. Like, we hear that all the time. I've heard that argument a lot. Like, God gave them over to, to all, to abandon, and that's why, you know, they, they turned from nature and blah, blah, blah. But, Paul does use that example in his, that, that, in his second, you know, statement of the three that all say the same thing. He does use that example. But the third time he says it, in his, you know, he says it, he says it again, adds some details, says it a third time, adds more to you. Here's how he says it the third time. Since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God and abandon them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that, they, that never should be done, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They were backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invented new ways of sinning. They disobeyed their parents. They refused to understand, break their promises. They're heartless and they have no mercy. Now please, before you declare one sin to be like the absolute bottom of the barrel. Um, you may want to check this list and, and make sure that, that you're not on here anyway, anywhere. I'll give you a minute. I don't like to pick on any one particular sin, but I did think I would highlight my favorites, my particular you know, list of favorites. When you go to Baskin-Robbins, those are the ones I pick. One of the 30 ones that I like. Just to, just to remind me that, that Paul isn't saying homosexual behavior, though, though clearly sinful in his list, is the evidence that God has completely abandoned someone to darkness, to the darkness of their sins. So yeah, the first thing I'm pointing out is, is please don't pretend like you're not on this list. Please don't pretend like this list doesn't include you. Because that sounds an awful lot like suppressing the truth. And I think that's where it starts which is not a good first step. The second thing I want to point out is that Paul makes the same exact point three times, three very different ways. He, 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 he changes it just a little bit, but keeps repeating himself. So when it seems like I'm over-explaining something, I'm just being biblical. That's my second point. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's the way I'm just trying to follow Paul's example. But after uh, repeatedly making his point that people know God, they choose not to know God, and then God lets them go into their sinful behavior. Paul wraps up this whole chapter, this whole kind of downward spiral, with this chilling statement that I think is important to us here at OTCC. He says, They know God's justice requires that those who do such things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Let me explain what just happened here. Paul describes how humanity plummets headlong into every imaginable sin. And just in case Paul's imagination wasn't big enough, he adds, they even invent new ways of sinning. Like, they, they, they get creative with it. So take your mind to the most depraved place it can go. No, don't do that. I'm kidding. That's, that's a bad 
It's a bad habit. Um, but when you imagine how far it can go, just know that someone can make up something farther. They can create new ways of, of getting insane. And half the time, we, you know, we sit around, like some of us that aren't very creative, like we still like the old-fashioned ways of sinning. And, and we're like, man, the stuff they come up with nowadays, that would have never crossed my mind. Like, we'll come up with stuff. But however far that tunnel goes, however far that like downward spiral can fall, Paul says, worse yet, like there's a worse. You can go as far as you think you can go, and there's still something worse. However far it is, there's a worse yet. And our society is playing with that worse yet a lot right now. Worse yet, they encourage others to do it too. I say this is meaningful to us here at OTCC because this verse speaks to agendas. This verse is talking about agendas. And do you realize there's a difference between sin, even a sinful lifestyle, and a sinful agenda? Those aren't the same thing. At OTCC, we love sinners. We do our best to love sinners. We want to welcome sinners, all sinners. We don't make you fill out an application to make, your, make sure that your particular sin fits our like, favorite flavors. Like we, don't, we, we want to welcome all sinners and love all sinners. We don't make you clean up your sinfulness before you come. That's never been on our plan. We, we want to welcome sinners. But, and this is important, just because we love sinners does not mean we love and welcome sinful agendas. There's a difference. If someone, if someone comes in, you know, our mission and vision and agenda at OTCC is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that includes sinners. That includes saving sinners. It's the only agenda we welcome. It's the only agenda we, we allow. Amen? Does that make sense? So, so sinners are welcome. And we encourage every kind of sinner. But, but, but we don't welcome sinful agendas. Does that distinction make sense? Because we have, we have people all the time, well, could this kind of person come? Could that kind of person come? Well, of course they could. There's no one that can't come. Now, that's very different than somebody walking in trying to spread a sinful agenda. Like that, that, those aren't the same things at all. And I don't have to have, have time, you know, as, as we... Does that, does that make sense to everybody? The difference? Like, and, and it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if it's, you know... I hate getting specific. It doesn't matter if it's a, a gay couple that wants to come or somebody wearing a MAGA hat and, and wanting to talk politics. It, when you come in with an agenda, that's not why we're here. We're here for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and I, I, we can love both those people, but when you come in wanting to push an agenda, that's not for the church. And, that, and, and so some people might be, well, would this kind of person, would that kind of person be welcome? Sure, the person would. But if they come in wanting to push an agenda, that's a whole different thing. We might have to step in and say, hey, we can't do that here. Does that make sense? And I, and I think it's because what Paul says here. Like, yeah, personal sin is one thing. Of course, and it goes crazy, and we know it goes crazy. But the worst yet is when you start wanting to teach that. You start wanting to push that to other people. That, that's, that's what can't be allowed. So, okay, probably took that farther than I needed to. Um, and I don't have time to fully unpack the next chapter the way, the way we did this one, but I, we don't really need to because Paul throws in this great little statement at the beginning. He says, you may think, so now he shifts gears to, to, to other people. You may think you can condemn such people. So let's get those people in your head, those people that just ride the spiral all the way to the bottom. And worse yet, they, they, they teach other people to do it. And you may think you can condemn such people. But you're just as bad. That's, he's talking to us. Those of you who look at those people and go, shame on them. You're just as bad. 
And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others uh, do these very same things. <laughs> I love this. You ever wonder how the, the, the Roman church, like when Paul like sent this letter, um, how they felt when they very, read this letter from Paul for the very first time? I'm sure they knew him by reputation, but it, it had to be pretty exciting to get like a letter from the great evangelist. Like, let's read this thing. And by the time you get to chapter 2, you're like, these people are sinners and those people are sinners and kids who disobey their parents are sinners and, and people come up with more creative ways to do sin and, and those of you who are judging such people, you're sinners. Yeah, they, they had to be sitting back like, boy, this guy's a bundle of fun. Like, isn't it? <laughs> Whew, thanks, Paul. But Paul lays out in chapter 1 what an immoral sinner looks like. And then he moves on to the moral sinner in chapter 2. Those of you who sit in church and, and you judge such people, you're on the list too. Which basically comes down to, you're just as bad and you should know better. That's what makes it worse. You should know better. They, half the people out there sitting don't know they're not supposed to. You should know better. It's a lame excuse. And what about believers who still sin? He's like, you know, you're, you're believers. You've got the scriptures. You've got everything. And you still sin. How much worse is that? Who pick on unbelie- unbelieving sinners while still sinning. And Paul is not at all gentle in this chapter. Let me just say that. In fact, let, let's just look at this one little, one little piece of it. This will be fun. He says, you know what he wants and you know what is right because you've been taught his law. You are convinced that you are the guide for the blind and the light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge of the truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? I mean, that's awesome. I, I guarantee, like, Paul's like one of my heroes. Guarantee I would not have liked this dude. Like, gosh, no way i just hang out and have a beer with Paul. Like, there's just no way. Like, he's heavy. But that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like a church we've all been to? And before you, before you hear that and think, well, I'm not that bad, though. I live a pretty good life. But, um... You know, let's just go back for one second. Yeah. How you doing? Everybody doing good? <laughs> we all good? Well, Paul, the ever kind of long-winded teacher, spends quite a bit of time kind of really convincing this religious sinner. We don't have time to go through it all. In, in Paul's day, it was the Jew, but I think it applies to the church pretty well. That they're no better off in their own righteousness than the most wicked, unchurched sinner. And just in case he left anybody out, he moves into chapter 3. And he uses an Old Testament passage to start making his point. Chapter 3, starting in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, As the Scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one seeks God. They've all turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drops from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder, destruction, and misery always follows them. And they don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God. 
at all. Whew. So just in case you've made it to chapter 3 and you're still feeling good about yourself, I hope that helps. Paul's point is pretty obvious here. As, as we stand at the door of the tabernacle, the entire gospel journey starts with us recognizing that we're sinners. There's no other way in. Paul spends three chapters belaboring the point and getting as graphic as he can to make sure we get it. So just in case we made it to, to, to chapter 3, he wants to make sure he gets us all in there. In fact, Paul ends this whole section with this conclusion. For no one has ever been made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. We talk about Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, He came and, and I think part of what He was doing was bringing that verse back into play. He says, you've, been, you've heard it said, don't murder. And most of us can clear that hurdle. I'm saying if you get angry with no reason, you're already a sinner. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Most of us can clear that hurdle. I'm saying if you look with lust, you're already a sinner. He's like, you put the law down here where it can be cleared? No, 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 no. It goes up here. No one has ever been made right with God by, by obeying the law. The entire purpose of the law is to bring us to the door of the tabernacle where we can stand and confess that we are sinners. And this is absolutely essential to the gospel. It can't be skipped. But this isn't a popular message today. Anywhere. Everybody wants free, the freedom and power and, and forgiveness that comes later in the book of Romans as we travel deeper into the tabernacle. But no one wants to stand here at the door and confess. We know the world doesn't like this message. They, they never really have. I've noticed in my own life as I, as I, as I talk with, with people about this chapter, even if, I, even if I own my own sin, I'm like, you know, I'm no better. Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really matter. People still want you to say that sin is not sin. People still want you to say that, that this is okay and that's okay. Even when you own your own sin. People still want... What they really want is for us to say that, that, that this stuff's really okay. That sin isn't sin. That they're fine just the way they are. And that's not really new. I think the world is, has always gotten frustrated at the church saying that, that we believe the Bible to be true. And when the Bible says something is sin, we don't feel the liberty to ignore or change that. We feel obligated to accept those definitions as they're given to us. But the really frustrating part of discussing sin today is the fact that the church doesn't like to talk about it. Or actually, maybe we don't know how to talk about it. And here's what I mean by that. I think there's a few different ways we tend to talk about sin. Number one, we talk about sin as though the entire purpose of the law um, and now the gospel is sin management. Like the gospel saves us, but then really everything goes back to the way it was. It still really comes down to, to not sinning and... and, and uh, and though Jesus died and rose for us, it's like you can't, you, you still can't sin. Like you still have to kind of clean things up and, and uh, at least don't openly sin. Like we understand we all sin, but you can't do it openly and you can't like it. Like you have to not like it. Like, and, 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 uh, and, and maybe you might like it a little bit, but don't embrace it. In fact, don't. We don't really know where the line is. That's the thing is we don't really know where the we know we're not supposed to sin, so we're going to talk about it that way. But but we all kind of also know we do, and so we get stuck in this ambiguity. Anybody recognize that ambiguity? Like you don't really know. Like like someone's like this. Like the law is gone. The gospel, you know. Like so I can sin? No. 
No, that hasn't changed at all. Like you still have to, and it's like, so where's the, yeah, we all get stuck in that ambiguity. We don't know what to do with that. The second way we talk about sin is we pick and choose. We all know this one. This is maybe the grossest one, but we all do it. You know, I, like my sins, my pet sins, you know, we keep them by our side. We love it. We pet it. We feed it. it this one's okay. We know we do it. And we all do it. So this one's okay. But our, our neighbor's ugly sin, like that's the real sin. Like that one's not okay. That one, you know, we pick on that one. We, 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 uh, we make rules against that one, you know, while we're petting ours, you know, because it's a good sin. The third way we deal with sin is to pretend like it doesn't exist. This is a big one. Like Jesus took care of sin, took it out of the picture. And so now we just have a lifelong series of self-help sermons that will give you the strongest possible Christian marriage and utterly debt-free Christian finances and Christ-loving kids and probably even a dog that loves Jesus if you do it just right. Like that's the message we kind of sell. It's like we think the gospel is all about words like success and intentionality and strategy and leadership process. There's virtually no difference between Christian material and good business leadership material. And of course, some, some of that makes sense because a lot of the times the, the, the things God put in the scripture work, whether you're a believer or not. Like, and so the fact that the leadership world wants to gather around those things makes sense. But it seems a little weird to me that if you go to like any of these mega church pastors now have leadership conferences and it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian when you go to them because it's good stuff and they just teach leadership in general and the gospel's never mentioned and sin is never mentioned it's just good biblical principles and it's and it's and it's strange that that you could take all of this and and preach it to the world and they like it because you don't mention sin sin doesn't exist anymore you just leave that out and everybody gets along fine the fourth way we talk about sin is like it's in the past tense this is another big one. Many Christians want to talk about how they used to be sinners. But now they see themselves as saved and redeemed and clean. And, and, and there's some value to that. The identity side, they, you know, I don't want to identify as a sinner anymore. I run into this a lot at Open Table because, you know, I, I certainly don't fault this understanding and people who disagree with my, me on this. But, but there's a reason we pray the prayer of contrition every week. When we start the prayers of the people, I believe that, that the first step to embracing the gospel of grace is accepting that we're sinners. We are, not were, are sinners. And this is tricky because the second we start to feel like we have our sin under control, the second we start to feel like we're pretty good, the second we start to lose our grip on grace, on the fact that we absolutely need God and we can't stand without Him. And of course I get people who... who uh, feel like constantly reminding ourselves that we're sinners is either morbid or like defeatist or like we're wallowing in our sin or worse yet, not fully accepting the, the, the salvation that's in Christ, the work that he's done. And I feel a great deal of that particular tension. But I also think it's kind of wrapped up in a big buzzword in our culture right now. For about the last 10 years, the word shame. Like Brene Brown, you know, did some bunch of research on shame years ago and, and uh, gave a big TED talk on it. And it kind of kicked off like a whole career um, on shame. And the gist of her message is that shame is bad. And that if you're vulnerable enough with a few people and, and you love yourself enough, you won't feel shame. She calls it shame resilience. And, and that's the goal. And people love this message. And I've read her books. I, I, she's got some really good stuff. But people love this message because no one likes feeling shame. 
And I think people worry that if, if we talk about sin, if we focus on, on, on everything Paul focused on in the, in the opening of this book, if we talk about those things, people might feel shame. It doesn't matter if we deny God and spiral completely out of control into our sin, uh, or, or if we love God and we judge people who do those things. That's what Paul said. Like it, you, it doesn't matter which side you're on. You're still a sinner. And if you made it through those, you get caught in the we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We fear that if we focus on those things, people might feel shame. And shame's a bad thing. We've been told shame's a bad thing. No one wants to feel shame. So we avoid sin completely. But Paul kicks off this entire passage talking about shame. And I think it speaks to why it's so important to face our sinfulness head on. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The remedy of shame isn't the ability to say I'm not ashamed of myself. Did you catch that? Paul doesn't say I'm not ashamed of myself. I have nothing to be ashamed of. That is not what Paul says. And this is a gigantic message in our culture today. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter who you sleep with or how many people you sleep with. Just swipe left. It doesn't matter what you believe or who you talk to or who you abuse or whether or not you show up to work and work hard, whether or not you're a person of integrity. Um, you do you, boo. Like, that's the world we live in right now. And, there's, and you have nothing to be ashamed of. That's the message right now. But Paul doesn't say that. He does say, I'm not ashamed. But he doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of myself. He unpacks it. I think the only true remedy for shame is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being truthful and authentic about our failures and sinfulness and then recognizing that because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the power of the resurrection, we are loved and accepted fully anyway. I may not always be proud of my behavior. I might mess up all the time, but I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed to stand up before God and say, because of the work of Jesus, I am saved. And it may be just me or, or it may be semantics. I don't know. But the more I recognize that I'm a sinner and in need of grace, who could by no means stand on his own in the presence of God on his own merit, the more grateful and awestruck and humbled I am by the gospel. It's like the smaller I get, the bigger God's grace gets in my vision. And I will never be ashamed of the grace of God. So I love praying every, every week, God, Father, forgive me for I have sinned in thought and word and deed by what I've done and by what I've left undone. Those are powerful words to me. And I think we always need to come to God's presence that way. Not because I want to wallow in my sinfulness, my sinful identity, but because where I stand, when I stand at the door of the tabernacle, I start by confessing my sins. And all the riches and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ are open and available to me when I do that. And for that, I'll never feel shame. Paul said in another letter, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about Jesus. And this kind of evangelistic apostle kicks off this huge foundational letter with almost three chapters just about sin. 
how far-reaching it is, how wicked and raunchy it is, and how creative it can be. Coming up with new ways to sin. Religious and judgmental sin. The you-ought-to-be-better sinner. Why commit almost a fourth of this book to such a bummer of a topic? And the answer is right there. The Gospel. Paul is not ashamed of the Gospel. And the Gospel starts with understanding I'm not worthy. The Gospel is, is, is only good news because we don't deserve it. That's what makes it good news. Paul knows the Gospel starts with owning that we do not deserve God's favor at all. And the fact that we have any access to Him is by a free gift of God's grace on our behalf. So Paul wanting as, as many of the Romans, and no doubt us as well, to experience the freedom the Gospel offers pulls his best Oprah. You're a sinner and you're a sinner and you're a sinner. We're all sinners. Because you can't go any deeper without owning that first. Without the realization that the entire goal of this book is to never stop going deeper. Paul does not want us to park on our sinfulness. This is the door of the tabernacle. There is so much more, but it starts here. I don't talk about sin a whole lot. It was weird for me to write this message. This is actually the first message I've ever written that I like almost finished and then erased it and started over because I went, I got weird. Like it got, it went down some weird tracks. I was like, what am I, how did I get here? I was like all the way done and I was still in chapter one talking about the grossness of sin. I was like, man, back up. What are you doing? I don't like talking about sin. This is like, like one of my least favorite topics. But I love everything else that's in the book of Romans. Like once we clear, once you get in the door, there is some beauty and richness and freedom and peace. But it starts here. So how do we respond to this? Luther, not long before inadvertently launching the Protestant Reformation, would sometimes spend upwards of six hours a day in confession. He was consumed with the idea of confessing every sin he could, he could think of that he had. So like six hours. Sometimes while confessing, his mind would wander into something inappropriate, and then he would have to confess that. And of course, talking about it made it worse, so then he would have to confess that. It just went on and on and on. His priest finally kicked him out of the confessional. was like, do not come back until you have something real to confess. Like, you're just making things up now. <laughs> but Luther didn't feel like he was making things up. He felt like, oh man, that was sinful, so he better confess that. I was never as bad as Luther, but I loved confession as a kid. It was weird. I grew up Catholic, and my friend Charlie and I used to drive across town on Sundays to my grandma's church. Um, Father Charles, my priest, um, was kind of a new, hip, and trendy priest, and he liked to do confession across his desk, like face-to-face. And I was a teenage boy, so the things that I wanted to confess, I was not going to look him in the face and confess. I would drive all the way to my grandma's church, where they had the little booth and the little sh- the screen where I couldn't see anybody. I'd go to the old school confessional. And sometimes I still miss it. Like, I don't actually miss that, but I miss the, the, the weird simplicity I had back then. I would walk out of confession feeling clean. Like, whew, it's all off. Like, I'm good. And that lasted like three minutes, but that was an amazing three minutes. Like, I felt really good for like three minutes. And then I don't think we need the Catholic confessional back. I do think that experience 
is exactly what Paul wants from this morning's passage. As a teenage boy, I would step into that small little closet and wait for somebody to slide the screen aside so that I could tell them horrible things. Things I'm not going to say from the pulpit, because this is a family service, for crying out loud. Like, and, and, and it was embarrassing, and it was hard, and it was awkward, and it was uncomfortable. And I would endure that shame, if you want to call it that, so that I could experience the beautiful, weightless freedom of walking out of that room, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Like, I would endure that as a teenager because I wanted that freedom. And I could be wrong about this, but I don't think you both get to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and say, I'm not ashamed of myself. I, I don't think, I, I think they're mutually exclusive. I think the only way to truly embrace the gospel, truly be grateful for the gospel, truly experience the gospel is to understand that you're unworthy of it. To know that I cannot on my own. So here's how I'd love to respond to this message. Over the next week, read Romans 1, 2, and 3. At least a verse 20 of chapter 3. And read it over and over and over again. And here's the caveat. Let those three chapters be a mirror, not a window. This morning we've used them mostly as a, as a window just to, to look through and, and see the world kind of through, through, those, uh, through that lens. But as you read it this week, every time you find yourself thinking about someone else who this applies to, someone else who needs this, someone else who really should read this, read it again. Anytime it becomes a mirror with which you look at the world, go back and read it again. And stay in it until it becomes a mirror. And you can see yourself in it. Because there's no back door to the tabernacle. There's no other way in. You can't sneak in to enjoy all the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the back door. You have to come through the door, which starts with confession. Always has, all the way back to Moses. You came to the tabernacle with your sacrifice ready to make confession. And sin is not like fashion or great 80s haircuts. Sin doesn't go out of style. And all the blessing and power and freedom that lies beyond the door is available to you. And that's what God wants from us. That's what I want for us. But it's only if you enter the right way. And Paul laid out that door in the first three chapters of this book. And those are yours and those are mine. It's our mirror to reveal how badly we need Christ. Because I don't know if you remember, but the very first key word was all. All. All sinners. God's wrath falls on all sinners. That too is for you and me and all of us. If we don't recognize that we are worthy of wrath, all of us worthy of wrath, then by no means will we, will we, will we be truly ready to receive the love and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ.